Escape Pod 107 May 24, 2007 Today's story, 8 episodes, by Robert Reed Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely, and this is week 3 of our Hugo nominees series for the year. It occurs to me we've jumped in with it these past couple of weeks without talking about what the Hugos are and why we're running them. Many of you are veteran SF fans and you already know this, or you heard it when we covered this last year, but we also have a lot of listeners who aren't familiar with the bigger fan community. Since part of our purpose with this is to promote fandom, I want to take a minute or two to explain. Science fiction has a lot of awards. The two that make it onto the covers of books are the Nebula Award and the Hugo Award. The Nebula is a peer award, voted on by the Science Fiction Writers of America. We don't cover them here because most of our audience isn't Cephal members. The Hugo is a fan award. It's technically voted on by the World Science Fiction Society, but the Society's only purpose is to organize Worldcon every year and the Hugos. Its members consist of anyone who attends or pays to support the Worldcon for that year. They're the ones who nominate and pick the Hugos. Worldcon moves from city to city. This year it's in Yokohama, Japan. There's a lot of technical detail about the Hugos that could be criticized, and it often is. There is politics involved, and there's a kind of old guard mentality in some of the choices. Some of the non-fiction categories have had the same winner every year for decades. But still, I admire the Hugos and Worldcon because they're the most visible example of fandom celebrating the material that feeds it, and celebrating itself. Escape Pod is committed to making offers on and running the Hugo nominees in the short story category every year. It gives us good stories, it gives me an excuse to talk about Worldcon, which is a fond subject for me, and it recognizes the importance of fandom and the power of fans to shape the genre. Without fans, there are no science fiction markets. And when fans say, we pick these works, these people, as the best in the business, that has power. It can also be a really fun time. Our story this week is one of two nominees about media, TV and movies. We present eight episodes by Robert Reed. I'm very pleased to have Mr. Reed on Escape Pod. He lives in Lincoln, Nebraska, and is one of my favorite writers to have constant appearances in the magazines, with over 140 stories published and 11 novels. He's been in the year's best anthologies every year since 1992, and he has two Hugo nominees this year, this one and the novella A Billion Eves. This particular story first appeared in Asimov's in June 2006. For this story, I figured we really needed someone who understood film and television. So the story is read for us by Marv Bell of the Director's Notes podcast. Marv runs excellent short films in his podcast and then follows them up by interviewing the directors. It's a terrific podcast for anyone interested in the nuts and bolts of visual media, and you can find it at directorsnotes.com. So put away your BitTorrent clients. It's story time. Eight episodes by Robert Reed. With minimal fanfare and next to no audience, Invasion of a Small World debuted in the summer of 2016, and after a brief and disappointing run, the series was deservedly shelved. One glaring problem was its production values. Computer animation had reached a plateau where reality was an easy illusion, spectacle was the industry norm, and difficult tricks like flowing water in human faces were beginning to approximate what was real. Yet the show's standards were barely adequate, even from an upstart web network operating with limited capital and too many hours of programming to fill. 
The landscapes and interior shots would have been considered state-of-the-art at the turn of the century, but not in its premiere year. The characters were inflicted with inexpressive faces and stiff-limbed motions, while their voices were equally unconvincing, employing amateur actors or some cut-rate audio synthesis software. With few exceptions, the dialogue was sloppy, cluttered with pauses and clumsy phrasing, key statements often cut off in mid-sentence. Most critics decided that the series' creators were striving for a real-life mood, but that was purely an interpretation. Press kits were never made available, and no interviews were granted with anyone directly involved in the production, leaving industry watchers entirely to their own devices, another problem that served to cripple Invasion. Other factors contributed to the tiny audience. One issue that couldn't be discussed openly was the racial makeup of the cast, Success in the lucrative North American market meant using characters of obvious European extraction. Yet the series' leading man was an Indian astronomer working at a fictional college set in, of all places, South Africa, with an unpronounceable name and thick accent. Dr. Smith, as his few fans dubbed him, was a pudgy, prickly creation with a weakness for loud shirts and deep belches. His wife was a homely apparition who understood nothing about his world-shaking work, while his children, in direct contrast to virtually every other youngster inhabiting popular entertainment, were dim-witted creatures offering nothing that was particularly clever or charming. A paucity of drama was another obvious weakness. The premiere episode involved a routine day in Dr. Smith's life. 18 hours of unexceptional behaviour was compressed to 53 minutes of unexceptional behaviour. Judging by appearances, the parent network inserted commercial breaks at random points, the series' pivotal event was barely noticed by the early viewers. One of Dr. Smith's graduate students was working with Permian Age rock samples, searching for key isotopes deposited by ancient supernovae. The student asked a professor about a difficult piece of lab equipment. As always, the dialogue was dense and graceless, explaining almost nothing to the uninitiated. Genuine scientists, some of the series' most unapologetic fans, like to point out that the instruments and principles were genuine, though the nomenclature was shamelessly contrived. 14 seconds of broadcast time introduced a young graduate student named Mary, a mixed-race woman who by no measure could be considered attractive. She was shown asking Dr. Smith for help with the problematic instrument, and he responded with a wave of a pudgy hand and a muttered, Later. Following ads for tiny cars and a powerful asthma medicine, the astronomer ordered his student to come to his office and lock the door behind her. What happened next was only implied, but afterwards, Dr. Smith was seen sitting with his back to his desk and his belt unfastened, and the quick-eyed viewer saw Mary's tiny breasts vanish under a bra and baggy shirt. Some people have interpreted her expression as pain, emotional or otherwise, Others have argued that her face was so poorly rendered that it was impossible to fix any emotion to her, then or later. And where good writers would have used dialogue to spell out the importance of the moment, bad writers decided to ignore the entire interpersonal plotline. With a casual voice, Mary mentioned to her advisor-lover that she had found something strange in the Permian stone. Strange, he repeated. With her thumb and finger, she defined a tiny space. Metal, a ball. Ball? In the rock. Smith scratched his fat belly for a moment, saying nothing. Judging by log tallies, nearly 10% of the program's small audience turned away at that point. Then he quietly said to her, I do not understand. What is it? What? She said, I don't know either. In what rock? Mine, the mudstone. You mean it's artificial? Looks so, she answered. 
He said, huh. She finished buttoning her shirt, the back of her left hand wiping the corner of her mouth. Where? Smith asked. She gave the parent Rock's identification code. No, the metal ball, he interrupted. Where is it now? My desk drawer in a white envelope. And how big? Two grains of rice, about. Then one last time the main character said, huh. And finally, without any interest showing in his face, he fastened his belt. The next three episodes covered not days but several months. Again, none of the scientific work was explained and nothing resembling a normal plotline emerged from the routine and the tedious. The increasingly tiny audience watched Dr. Smith and two of his graduate students working with an object almost too small to be resolved on screen. Another significant problem with the series. Wouldn't a human-sized artifact have made a greater impact? The ball's metal shell proved to be an unlikely alloy of nickel and aluminium. Cosmic radiation and tiny impacts had left the telltale marks one would expect after a long drifting journey through space. Using tiny lasers, the researchers carefully cut through the metal shell, revealing a diamond interior. Then the diamond heart absorbed a portion of the laser's energy, and once charged, it powered up its own tiny light show. Fortunately, a nanoscopic camera had been inserted into the hull, and the three scientists were able to record what they witnessed, a rush of complex images coupled with an increasingly sophisticated array of symbols. What is this? they kept asking one another. Maybe it's language, Mary guessed, correctly as it happened. Someone's teaching us, trying to, a new language. Dr. Smith gave her a shamelessly public hug. Then the other graduate student, a Brazilian fellow named Carlos, pointed out that, whatever the device was, Mary had found it in rock that was at least a quarter of a billion years old. And that doesn't count the time that this little machine spent in space, which could be millions more years. After the show's cancellation, at least one former executive admitted to having been fooled. We were promised a big, loud invasion, he told an interviewer from Rolling Stone. I talked to the series producer. He said an invasion would be right after episode four. Yeah, we knew the build-up was going to be slow, but then aliens from the dinosaur days were going to spring to life and start burning cities. Except, said the interviewer. What? That's not quite true. The Permian happened before there were any dinosaurs. With a shrug, the ex-executive brushed aside the mild criticism. Anyway, the important thing is that badass aliens were supposed to come out of the rock. They were going to grow huge and start kicking us around. At least, that's what the production company... EXL Limited assured us. A spectacle, and since we didn't have to pay much for those episodes, we ended up purchasing the first eight shows after seeing only a few minutes of material. Invasion was cancelled after the fifth episode. The final broadcast episode was an artless synopsis of the next 20 months of scientific work. Dr. Smith and his students were just a tiny portion of a global effort. Experts on six continents were making a series of tiny, critical breakthroughs, most of the story involved faceless researchers exchanging dry emails about the tiny starship's text and images. Translations were made. Every shred of evidence began to support the obvious but incredible conclusions. The culminating event was a five-minute news conference. Dripping in sweat, shaking from nerves, the astronomer explained to reporters that he had found a functioning starship on Earth. After a glancing thanks to unnamed colleagues, he explained how, in the remote past, Perhaps long before there was multicellular life on Earth, an alien species had manufactured trillions of tiny ships like this one. 
The ships were cast off into space, drifting slowly to planetary systems scattered throughout the galaxy. The vessel that he had personally recovered was already ancient when it had dropped onto a river bottom near the edge of Gondwana land. Time had only slightly degraded its onboard texts, a history of the aliens and an explanation into the nature of life in the universe. By all evidence, he warned, human beings were late players to an old drama, and like every other intelligent species in the universe, they would always be small in numbers and limited in reach. The final scene of the fifth episode was set at Dr. Smith's home. His eldest son was sitting before a large plasma screen, destroying alien spaceships with extraordinarily loud weapons. In what proved to be the only conversation between those two characters, Smith sat beside his boy, asking, Did you see me? What? The news conference. Yeah, I watched. So, he said, and when no response was offered, he asked, What did you think? About what? The lesson. What? People don't matter. The boy froze the battle scene and put down his controls. I think that's stupid. His father said nothing. The universe isn't empty and poor. The boy was perhaps 14 and his anger was the most vivid emotion in the entire series. Worlds are everywhere and a lot of them have to have life. Millions are blessed, yes, Dr. Smith replied, but hundreds of billions more are too hot, too cold. They are metal starved or married to dangerous suns. His son stared at the frozen screen, saying nothing. The alien texts only confirm our most recent evidence, you know. The Earth is a latecomer. Stellar births are slowing, in the Milky Way and everywhere, and the production of terrestrial worlds peaked two or three billion years before our home was created. These texts of yours, they say that intelligent life stays at home. Most of the time, yes. Aliens don't send out real starships. It's far too expensive, Smith offered. The boy pushed out his lower lip. Humans are different, he maintained. No, we're going to build a working star drive, soon I bet, and then we'll visit our neighbouring stars and colonise those worlds. We can't. Because they tell us we can't. Because it's impossible, his father shook his head, saying with authority. The texts are explicit. Moving large masses requires prohibitive energies, and terraforming is a difficult, often impossible trick. And that is why almost every world we have found to date looks as sterile as the day they were born. But the teenage boy would accept none of that. You know, don't you, that those aliens are just lying to us. They're afraid of human beings because they know we're the toughest, meanest things in the universe and we're going to take them on. For a long moment, Dr. Smith held silent. Then the boy continued his game and into the mayhem of blasters, the father mouthed a single dismissive word, children. Eighteen months later, the fledgling web network declared bankruptcy and a small consortium acquired its assets, including Invasion of a Small World. Eager to recoup their investment, the new owners offered all eight episodes as a quick and dirty DVD package. When sales proved somewhat better than predicted, a new version was cobbled together, helped along by a genuine ad budget. The strongest initial sales came from the tiny pool of determined fans, young and well-educated, with little preference for nationality or gender. But the scientists in several fields, astronomy and paleontology included, were the ones who created a genuine buzz that eventually put invasion into the public eye. The famous sixth episode helped trigger the interest. That weak, rambling tale of Dr. Smith, his family and students, was temporarily suspended. Instead, the full 53 minutes were dedicated to watching a barren world spinning silently in deep space. According to corporate memos, 
The last three episodes arrived via the web, bundled in a single package, but it was this episode that effectively killed the series. There were no explanations, nothing showed but the grey world spinning 20 minutes before the point of view gradually pulled away. The world was just a tiny speck of metal lost in the vastness of space. For astronomers, it was a fascinating moment, a vivid illustration that the universe could be an exceedingly boring place. Stars were distant points of light, and there was only silence, and even when millions of years were compressed into a nap-length moment, nothing was produced that could be confused with great theatre. But what the astronomers liked best, what got the buzz going, were the final few moments of the episode. Chance brought the tiny starship into the solar system, and Chance guided it past the younger Saturn. The giant moon, Titan, swung close before the ship was kicked out to Neptune's orbit. Then it drifted sunward again, Mars near enough to reveal its face. 250 million years ago, Titan was bathed in a much denser atmosphere, while Mars was temporarily a wet world, heated by a substantial impact event. Experts in those two worlds were impressed. Only in the last year or two, probes had discovered what invasion predicted on its own, including pinpointing the impact site near the Martian South Pole. In much the same way, Episode 7 made the paleontologists crazy. With its long voyage finished, the tiny starship struck the Earth's upper atmosphere, quickly losing its momentum as well as a portion of its hull. The great southern continent was rendered accurately enough to make any geologist smile, while the little glimpses of Pamin's ecosystems were even more impressive. Whoever produced the series, and there was a growing controversy on that matter, they had known much about proto-mammals and the early reptiles, cycads and tree ferns. One ancient creature, lizard in form, though not directly related to any modern species, was the only important misstep. Yet five months later, a team working in South Africa uncovered a set of bones that perfectly matched what a vanished dramatic series had predicted. And what was already a cultish buzz grew into a wild, increasingly public cacophony. At least 40,000 sites chat rooms and blogs and such, were dedicated to supporting the same inevitable conclusion. By means unknown, aliens had sent a message to Earthlings, and it took the form of invasion of a small world. The eighth episode was a genuine treasure. Dr. Smith reappeared, several years older, divorced and with his belly fat stripped off by liposuction. He was shown wandering happily through a new life of endless celebrity, his days and long evenings were spent with at least three mistresses, as well as a parade of world leaders. Accustomed to the praise of others, he was shown grinning confidently while offering his interpretations of the ancient message. The universe was almost certainly sprinkled with life, he explained, but despite that prolificacy, the cosmos remained an enormous, very cold and exceptionally poor place. The gulfs between living worlds was completely unbridgeable, no combination of raw energy and questing genius could build a worthy star drive. Moreover, even direct communication between local species was rarely worth its considerable cost, since civilizations rarely, if ever, offered each other anything with genuine worth. Technology has distant limits, he warned the starlets and world leaders that he met at cocktail parties. Humans are already moving into the late stages of scientific endeavour, what matters most to us, and to any wise species, is the careful shepherding of energy and time. That is why we must care for our world and the neighbouring planets inside our own little solar system. We must treasure every day while wasting nothing, if only to extend our histories as far into the future as possible.
That strikes me as such depressing news, said one Prime Minister, a statuesque woman blessed with a starlet's beautiful face. If there really are millions and billions of living worlds, as you claim, and if all the great minds on all those worlds are thinking hard about this single problem, shouldn't somebody learn how to cheat the speed of light or create free energy through some clever trick? If that was so, Dr. Smith replied, then every world out there would be alive and the giant starships would arrive at our doorstep every few minutes. But instead, human experience has discovered precisely one star-faring vessel and it was a grain of metallic dust and to reach us it had to be exceptionally lucky and, even then, it had to wait a quarter of a billion years to be noticed. The Prime Minister sipped her Virgin Mary and chewed on her lower lip. Then with a serious tone she said, But to me, there seems to be another reasonable explanation for waiting for our attention. Which would be what, madam? Subterfuge, she offered. The aliens are intentionally misleading us about the nature of the universe. Bristling, he asked. And why would they do such a thing? To cripple our future, she replied. By convincing us to remain home, they never have to face us between the stars. Perhaps you're right to think that, madam, said the old astronomer, nodding without resolve. Then, in his final moment in the series' final episode, he said, A lie is as good as a pill if it helps you sleep. For years, every search to uncover the creative force behind invasion of a small world came up empty, and in the public mind, that single mystery remained the final, most compelling part of the story. Former executives with the doomed network had never directly met with the show's producers, but they could recount phone conversations and teleconferences and emails exchanged with three apparent producers. Of course, by then it was possible to invent a digital human face and voice while weaving a realistic mix of human gestures, which led some to believe that slippery forces were plainly at work here, forces that no human eye had ever witnessed. Tracking down the original production company produced only a dummy corporation leading to dusty mailboxes and several defunct web addresses. Every name proved fictional, both among the company's offices and those in the brief credits rolling at the end of each episode. Surviving tax forms lacked any shred of useful information, but where the IRS might have chased down a successful cheat, the plain truth was that whoever was responsible for invasion had signed away all future rights in exchange for a puddle of cash. The few sceptics wondered if something considerably more ordinary was at play here. Rumours occasionally surfaced about young geniuses working in the third world, usually in the Indian tech cities, employing pirated software and stolen equipment, they produced what would eventually become the fifth most successful media event in history. But in the short term, their genius had led nowhere but to obscurity and financial ruin. Three different candidates were identified, young men with creative minds and most of the necessary skills. Did one of them build Invasion alone, or was it a group effort? And was the project's failure the reason why each of them committed suicide shortly after the series' cancellation? But if they were the creators, why didn't any trail lead to them? Perhaps because the consortium that held all rights to invasion had obscured the existing evidence. And why? Obviously to help feed this infectious and delicious mood of suspicion, to maintain an atmosphere where no doubts could find a toehold, where aliens were conversing with humans, and where the money continued to flow to the consortium like a great green river. The most durable explanation was provided by one of the series' most devoted fans, a Nobel laureate in physics who was happy to beat the drum for the unthinkable. Invasion is true everywhere but in the specifics, he argued. I think there really was an automated starship, 
But it was bigger than a couple of grains of rice, as big as a fist or a human head, but still small and unmanned. The ship entered our solar system during the Permian. With the bulk of it in orbit, pieces must have landed on our world. Scouts with the size and legs of small cockroaches, maybe. Maybe. And if you take the time to think it through, you see that it would be a pretty silly strategy letting yourself become a tiny fossil in an enormous bed of mudstone. What are the odds that you'd survive for 250 million years, much else ever get noticed there? No, if you're an automated starship, what would be smart is for that orbiting mothership to take a seat where nothing happens and she can see everything. On the moon, I'd guess. She still has the antennas that she used to hear the scouts' reports. She sleeps and waits for radio signals from the Earth. And when they arrive, she studies what she hears. She makes herself into a student of language and technology. And when the time is ripe, when she has a product to sell, she expels the last of her fuel leaving the moon to land someplace useful, which is pretty much anywhere these days. Looking like a roach, maybe, she connects to the web and offers her services at a cut-rate price. And that is how she delivers her message. Paraphrasing my fictional colleague, a lie is as good as a truth if it leads you to enlightenment. The final scene in the last episode only seemed anticlimactic. The one-time graduate student, Mary, had been left behind by world events. From the beginning, her critical part in the research had been downplayed, but the series' creator, whoever or whatever it was, saw no useful drama in that treachery. The woman was middle-aged and happy in her obscurity, plain as always and pregnant for at least the second time. A ten-year-old daughter was sitting beside Mary, sharing a threadbare couch. The girl asked her mother what she believed. Was the universe really so empty and cold? And was this the way it would always be? Quietly, the mother said, I think that's basically true, yes. The girl looked saddened. But then Mary patted her daughter on the back of her hand and smiled with confidence. But dear, I also believe this, she said. Life is an invasion, wherever it shows itself. It is relentless and it is tireless, and it conquers every little place where living is possible. And before the universe ends, all the good homes will know the sound of wet breathing and the singing of glorious songs. And that was our story. I imagine Mr. Reed was too polite to say it, but it's obvious. An unusual and intellectual show cancelled after five episodes? Clearly, this invasion was on Fox. Here's a great voicemail message from a couple of weeks ago. G'day, Steve. It's Ricky Buchanan here. I've called to leave voice feedback for Skatepod a couple of times before. I'd like to first wish Skatepod happy second birthday. I've just today listened to Nightfall episode 100 and I am absolutely bowled over backwards that you got an Isaac Asimov story on a skate pod. This is like all my Christmases come at once and at the moment I'm having a lot of medical problems and I'm waiting for a lot of medical tests and it just took me right back to when I was 12 and my parents were science fiction buffs so I, uh, they had a lot of Asimov and the other sort of golden age writers and I remember most reading the robot books and reading them over and over again and actually also remember trying to read the Foundation series and thinking it was boring as hell. Luckily when I picked it up again 
five years later, I realized that it was actually really fantastic. <laughs> One of my goals in life is to actually read every book that Isaac Asimov published. Uh, I think I've read virtually all of the fiction, uh, but I've only read about five of the non-fiction, so I've got a lot to go. I, I can't tell you how grateful I am for a skateboard or how much of a difference it makes to have these wonderful stories every week for free. It just means a huge amount, and I, I don't think I could ever express to you how wonderful a skate pod is for me. So, congratulations on 100 episodes. Congratulations on two years. Thanks, Steve. Bye. Thank you very much, Ricky, for all your kind words. If you're going to read the rest of Asimov, you're going to need a lot of time, and you have my very best wishes. So... This is the part of the show where we talk about feedback to past episodes. With so many positive comments to our stories lately, I was starting to worry that this segment might get boring. Luckily, we ran Escape Pod 104, Lust for Learning, and that pretty much blows the positive trend. We did get a few notes of approval. Fun and provocative were words often used. Jim said he thought the story was meant to be provocative. Quote, If you think about it too much, you'll end up just dismissing it as preposterous. Such a thing might be called the Matrix Trilogy Syndrome. But we had far more criticism of it, mostly on structural grounds. People felt there wasn't enough plot there, or conflict, or that the whole premise was far more dystopic than amusing. Mr. Tweedy posted a detailed and systematic criticism, wrapping it up with, quote, This is not quality science fiction. It's just an adolescent daydream with a few big words thrown in to make it seem credible. Even Cunning Minx, the narrator, told me at one point that she had issues with the story because it used sex as a means to an end, rather than a meaningful pursuit in itself. This is all valid criticism, and I'm grateful to everyone who shared their views. I don't think anyone's wrong, either for pointing out flaws in the story, or for liking it anyway. I personally was in the like it anyway camp, but you won't see experiments like this one too often. We also got a few comments about my intro, and the personal remarks I'd made therein. I thank you all for your opinions, but I'm not going to spend any more time addressing the personal side of it here. I've got a live journal page, sfeely.livejournal.com, if you really want to hear me talk about stuff that has nothing to do with Escape Pod. And yeah, you can make fun of me for being on Live Journal all you want. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non commercial, no derivatives license. All of the rights are reserved by our authors, or their remarkably detailed simulations. If you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site, escapepod.org. For the best in audio horror fiction, check out Pseudopod at pseudopod.org. And you can buy archive CDs of our shows at poddisc.com. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju, rocking the Permian Age and well into the Mesozoic era at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes from activist Barbara Ehrenreich, who said, We love watching television because television brings us a world in which television does not exist. So tune in next week. Meanwhile, have fun 